Part two of the Journal of Submarine von Forstner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner by Georg Gunther Freiherr von Forstner. Translated by Anna Crafts Codman with commentary by John Hayes Hammond, Jr. The Journal, Part 2 The captain quickly issues his orders for the course to be steered and for the necessary navigation. The officer in charge of the torpedoes receives the command to clear the loaded torpedo for firing, while the captain quietly calculates, first, the relative position of his boat to the enemy's ship according to the course she has taken, secondly, at which point he must aim the torpedo to take surest effect, and in the same way as in hunting a hare, he withholds the shot to correspond to his victim's gait. Many thoughts fly through his brain. Here among his companions, the annihilation of the enemy will cause joyful enthusiasm, while among them, their downfall will cause overwhelming sorrow. But without doubt, they must vanish from the seas, and only a man who has experienced these sensations knows how many secondary matters occur to him at such a time. With lowered periscope he sees nothing that goes on above him on the sea, and, like a blind man, the boat feels its way through the green flood. Every possible event becomes a subject of conjecture. Will the fellow continue on the same course? Has he seen our periscope in the second it was exposed, and is he running away from us? Or, on the contrary, having seen us, will he put on full steam and try to run us down with a fatal death-stroke from his prow? At such an instant of high nervous tension, I have caught myself giving superfluous orders to let myself relax, and yet I knew that every man was at his post fully conscious that his own safety, the safety of the whole boat, and the honor of the fatherland were all at stake and dependent on his individual effort. I knew, of course, that each fine fellow down in the machinery room or at the torpedo tubes had done his very best, and that all his thoughts were centered, like mine, in keen expectancy on the firing of our first torpedo, the eel, as we call it, guarded with so much love and care, which would speed along accompanied by our warmest wishes. We give nicknames to our torpedoes, mostly feminine names. Side by side below lie the Fat Bertha, the Yellow Mary, and the Shining Emma. And these ladies expected to be treated, like all ladies, with the tenderest care and courtesy. Now comes the announcement from the torpedo officer, the torpedoes are cleared for firing. He stands with a firm hand, awaiting the signal from his commander to permit the torpedo to drive ahead against the hated but unconscious adversary, and to bore its way with a loud report deep into the great steel flank. Once again the periscope springs for an instant to the surface, and then glides back into the protecting body of the turret. The captain exclaims, we are at them, and the news spreads like wildfire through the crew. He gives a last rapid order to straighten the course of the boat. 
the torpedo officer announces, torpedo ready, and the captain, after one quick glance through the periscope as it slides back into its sheath, immediately shouts, fire. Even without the prescribed announcement from the torpedo officer that the torpedo had been sent off, everyone knows that it is speeding ahead, and for a few seconds we remain in anxious suspense, until a dull report provokes throughout our boat loud cheers for Kaiser and for Empire, and by this report we know that the fat Bertha has reached unhindered her destination. Radiant with joy, the commander breathes a sigh of relief, and he does not check the young sailor at the wheel, who seeks to grasp his hand and murmur his fervent congratulations. But congratulations must be postponed until we ascertain that our success is complete. And once again the periscope runs up towards the laughing daylight, while the commander, in happy but earnest tones, utters the reassuring words, the ship is sinking, further torpedoes can be spared. He then permits the gratified torpedo officer, who stands by his side, a quick glance through the periscope to verify the result of his own efficiency. It is chiefly owing to the care of the personnel of the torpedo squad that the torpedoes are maintained in such perfect condition and that their aim is so correct, and to them is due in great part the success of our attack. The commander and his officer exchange a knowing look, for they have seen the enemy's ship heavily listing to one side, where the water is rushing into the gaping wound, and soon she must capsize. They see her crew hastily lowering the lifeboats, their only means of escape, and this is a sufficient proof of our victory. We can depart now in all security. Concealing our presence, we plunge and vanish beneath the waters. Having reached a certain distance, we stop to make sure that our victim lies at the bottom of the ocean. We behold the waves, playing gently and smoothly as before, over the cold, watery grave of the once proud ship, and we hasten away from the scene of our triumph. There is no need of our going to the help of the enemy's crew struggling in the sea, for already their own torpedo boats are hurrying to the succor of their comrades, and for us there is no further work to be done. Imagine the enthusiasm our dear fallen comrade Weddingen and his crew must have felt as the loud report of their last torpedo announced the destruction of their third English armed cruiser. CHAPTER Four, MOBILIZATION AND THE BEGINNING OF THE COMMERCIAL WAR After long and agitated waiting, we received, in the last days of July 1914, the command to mobilize. Joyful expectation was visible on every face, and the only fear that prevailed was that those of us who were awaiting our orders on land might be too late to take part in the naval battle we were all looking forward to so eagerly. A few years ago, one of the lords of the English Admiralty had predicted that in the first naval battle fought between Germany and England, the German fleet would be entirely annihilated. We naturally only smiled in derision at these boastful words. The English newspapers, besides, had for many years announced that Whenever German officers met together, they drank a toast to the day. Although, of course, this was untrue, 
yet we were all burning to prove in battle what our great navy had learned in long, hard-working years of peace. A mighty engagement at sea seemed to us imminent during these first days of war, and we all longed to be in it. I was, however, at the moment, among those unfortunates who were strapped down to a desk in the Admiralty, and with envy I beheld my comrades rushing to active service, for I had always hoped to lead my old beloved U-boat victoriously against the enemy. We had all placed strong hopes in the part our submarines would eventually play in a great crisis, but we never dreamed that they would so successfully take the first role as our most effective weapon in naval warfare. With a happiness that can hardly be described, I suddenly received the order to take over the command of a fine new U-boat, which had just been built at Kiel. Never before was a pen more quickly thrown aside and a desk closed than when I handed over my duties in the Admiralty to my successor. And shortly afterwards I took possession of my new, splendid boat, to which I was going to confide all my luck and all I was humanly capable of doing. I addressed my crew in a short speech, and told them we could best serve our almighty warlord in bringing this new weapon of attack confided to our care to the highest state of efficiency, and my words were greeted with loud cheers. There was much work to be done in putting the finishing touches to our submarine, which had only just come off the ways. The auxiliary machines had to be tested, and certain inner arrangements made but thanks to the untiring zeal of the crew and to the eager help we received from the Imperial Navy Yard, our task was soon accomplished. After a few short trial trips and firing tests, I was able to declare our boat ready for sea and for war, and after everything had been formally surveyed by the inspector, we left our home port before the middle of August. Departing at a high speed, we bade farewell to the big ships still at their moorings, and we soon joined our fellow submarines, who had already in the first fortnight of war, according to an announcement of the Admiralty staff, made a dash as far as the English coast. And here is the proud record of what they further accomplished. At the beginning of September 1914, the English cruiser Pathfinder was torpedoed by Lieutenant Captain Hersing, who later sunk the two ships of the line Triumph and Majestic in the Dardanelles, and was rewarded with our highest order, pour le mérite. This initial success proclaimed our submarines to be our greatest weapon of offense, and their importance became of worldwide renown for we claim the honor of having fired the first successful torpedo shot from a submarine. It opened a new era in maritime warfare, and was the answer to many questions which had puzzled the men of our profession the whole world over. Above all, we had proved that a German U-boat, after a long and difficult voyage, could reach the enemy's coast, and after penetrating their line of defense, was able to send one of their ships to the bottom of the sea with one well-aimed torpedo shot. The age of the submarine had truly begun. Other victories followed in prompt succession. Weddingen's wonderful prowess off the hook of Holland on September 22, 1914, 
will never be forgotten. In the space of an hour, he sunk the three English armored cruisers, Cressy, Haig, and Abukir, and shortly afterwards dispatched their comrade Hawk to keep them company at the bottom of the North Sea. Let me add to this list the English cruiser Hermes near Dover, the Niger off the downs of the English coast, the Russian cruiser Palada in the Baltic, and a great number of other English torpedo boats, torpedo boat destroyers, as well as auxiliary cruisers and transports. All this was achieved before the end of 1914. Unfortunately, I am not at liberty, for obvious reasons, to describe my own part in the beginning of the war, but hope to be able to do so after we achieve a victorious peace. Our dear cousins on the other side of the channel must have been rather disquieted by the loss of so much shipping at the hands of our boats or of our mines, and they must have realized that a new method of warfare had begun, for their fleet no longer paraded in the North Sea or in any of the waters in the war zone. Their great valuable ships were withdrawn, and the patrol of their coast was confided only to smaller craft and to the mine layers in order that their people might, supposedly, sleep in peace. Our adversary was concealed by day, and only ventured forth at night, confident that darkness would ensure his safety. This was then the hour for us to lie in watch for our prey, and no more glorious clarion call could have heralded in the new year than the torpedo shot which, on the New Year's Eve of 1915, sent the mighty ship of the line formidable to the bottom of the channel. This was our first triumphant victory, which showed that not even darkness could circumvent our plans, and which dispelled all further doubts as to our efficiency. A few days after the sinking of the formidable, a piece of one of the rowboats was washed ashore at Zeebrugge, and now adorns our sea museum as the only reminder left of the great ship. We stood at last on the same footing as our dear old sister, the torpedo boat, to whom we in reality owed our present development, and from now on, in proud independence, we were justified in considering ourselves a separate branch of the Navy. Now that England felt obliged to withhold the activities of her fleet, she instigated against us the commercial blockade and hunger war. She obliged neutrals to follow a prescribed route, and by subjecting their vessels to search, she prevented them from selling us any of their wares. In this manner she sought to redeem herself from the paralysis we had brought on her fleet, and her unscrupulous treatment of the right of nations, and her interpretation of the so-called freedom of the seas, are only too well known. We retaliated on February 4, 1915, by prescribing a certain danger zone, which extended around Great Britain and Ireland and along the north coast of France. By this interdict, public opinion was enlightened as to the part our U-boats were going to perform in this new commercial warfare, a part, I must admit, that few people had anticipated before the commencement of hostilities. Of course, new demands were to be made upon us. We should have to make long undersea trips, and remain for some time in the enemy's waters, after which we should have to return unperceived. The English called it German Bluff, 
but their tone soon changed after we had made our first raid in the heart of the Irish Channel, and few of them now ventured abroad except when forced by the most imperative obligations. At the end of October 1914, the first English steamer, Glitra, was sunk off the Norwegian coast. It carried a cargo of sewing machines, whiskey, and steel from Leith. The captain was wise enough to stop at the first signal of the commander of the U-boat, and he thereby saved the lives of his crew, who escaped with their belongings after the steamer was peacefully sunk. If others later had likewise followed his example, innocent passengers and crew would not have been drowned, and, after all, people are fond of their own lives. But these English captains were following the orders of their government to save their ships through flight. The English authorities even went so far as to inaugurate a sharpshooting system at sea by offering a reward to any captain who rammed or destroyed a German submarine, although the latter could only obey this command at the risk of their lives. But what cared the rulers in England for the existence of men belonging to the lower classes of the nation? They offered tempting rewards for these exploits in the shape of gold watches, and bribed the captains of the merchant marine with the promise of being raised to the rank of officers in the reserve. Therefore, the British newspapers were filled with the account of the destruction of German U-boats, and of the generous rewards given for these fine deeds. It was jolly for us, on our return to port to read the record of our own doom, and scarcely would there be a submarine afloat if these records had been true. I should like to tell a short story in connection with these assertions of English prowess. One of their small steamers had actually contrived, in misty weather, to ram the turret of one of our submarines while it was in the act of submerging. The English captain was loudly praised in all the newspapers, and received the promised rewards for having sunk, as he declared, a German U-boat. He had distinctly felt, he said, the shock of the collision. His statement was certainly accurate, for the submarine was also conscious of the shock. But it was fortunately followed with no evil results, and our commander had the joyful surprise, shortly afterwards when he emerged, to find the blade of the foe's propeller stuck in the wall of the turret, whose excellent material had preserved it from serious injury. We happily hope that the German Empire will never run so short of bronze that it will be obliged to appropriate, for the melting pot, this fine propeller blade, which is one of the many interesting trophies preserved in our submarine museum. CHAPTER Five our own part in the commercial war, and our first captured steamer. As we have said above, our war against the merchant marine of the Allied nations began in February 1915 throughout the war zone established around the English and French coasts. Day after day the number increased of steamers and sailboats that we had sunk, and commercial relations between all countries were seriously menaced. The English were forced to believe in our threats, and even the shipping trade of the neutrals had greatly diminished. The mighty British fleet no longer dared to patrol the seas, and the merchantmen were told to look out for themselves, and were even armed for the purpose. While the winter lasted, there was not much for us to do, and we awaited fine weather with lively impatience. 
During this period, our victorious armies had occupied Belgium and Serbia and conquered the Russian girdle of fortifications. The subsequent participation of Italy produced but little impression on the fortunate current of events, whereas Turkey's entrance at our side in the war opened a new field of operation for our U-boats in the Mediterranean. At last, I myself was ordered to prepare for a long voyage, which I welcomed most joyfully after several months of comparative inaction. We were to remain in the enemy's waters for several weeks, which, of course, involved the most elaborate preparations. Every portion of the boat was again minutely inspected, every machine repaired and thoroughly tested. Like a well-groomed horse, we must be in perfect condition for the coming race. Each man in the crew holds a responsible position and knows that the slightest neglect endangers the welfare of the whole boat. The commander must be certain that everything is completed according to the highest standard. The boat is frequently submerged and performs various exercises under seas while it is still safe in the friendly waters off our own coast. We are always abundantly provisioned, for the thirty men must be given the most nourishing food to be fit for their arduous tasks. I have often laughed to see the quantity of provisions placed on deck for the dealers, of course, are never allowed to penetrate the inner shrine of the boat. And yet we have often returned from a long cruise because our food was coming to an end. Every available corner and space is filled with provisions. The cook, a sailor specially trained for the job, must hunt below in every conceivable place for his vegetables and meats. The latter are stored in the coolest quarters next to the munitions. The sausages are put close to the red grenades, the butter lies beneath one of the sailor's bunks, and the salt and spice have been known to stray into the commander's cabin below his berth. When everything is in readiness, the crew is given a short leave on land to go and take the much-coveted hot bath. This is the most important ceremony before and after a cruise, especially when the men return for when they have remained unwashed for weeks, soaked with machine oil and saturated with salt spray, their first thought is a hot bath. At sea we must be very sparing of our fresh water supply, and its use for washing must be carefully restricted. The commander usually spends the eve of his departure in the circle of his comrades, but it is a solemn moment for him as soon as he sails from his native shore. He becomes responsible for every action which is taken, and for many weeks no orders reach him from his superiors. He is unable to ask anyone's advice or to consult with his inferiors, and he stands alone in the solitude of his higher rank. Even the common sailor is conscious of the seriousness of the task ahead and of the adventures which may occur below seas. No loud farewells, no jolly hand, no beckoning girls are there to bid us Godspeed. Quietly and silently do we take our departure. Neither wife nor child, nor our nearest and dearest, know whither we go. If we remain in home waters, or if we go forth to encounter the foe, we can bid no one farewell. It is through the absence of news that they know that we have gone, 
and no one is aware except the special high officer in this department of the admiralty who gives the commander his orders on what errand we are bound or when we shall return for the slightest indiscretion might forfeit the success of our mission before dawn on the day of our departure the last pieces of equipment and of armament are put on board and the machinery is once more tested then at the appointed hour the chief engineer informs the commander that everything is ready a shrill whistle bids the crew cast loose the moorings and at the sound of the signal bell the boat begins to move as we glide rapidly out of port we exchange by mutual signs a few last greetings with our less favored comrades on the decks of the ships we leave behind who no doubt also long to go forth and meet the enemy the land begins to disappear in the distance and as we gaze at the bobbing buoys that vanish in our wake we hope that after a successful journey they will again be our guides as we return to our dear german homes after gliding along smoothly at first we soon feel the boat tossing among the bigger waves but we laugh as they heave and dip around us for we know everything is shipshape on board and that they can do us no harm the wild seas are bearing us onward toward the hated foe and after all in the end they lull so peacefully to sleep the sailor in his eternal rest end of part two